Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cappy Productions. Today's episode is brought to you by the musical stylings of After Dark. They have fantastic music. It always reminds me of pop music from the 90s in the best way. It's so comforting and wonderful. And I happen to know the artists. And they have been very supportive and are sponsoring today's show. And I couldn't appreciate them more. So go to Spotify, look up After Dark. It'll be the one that has the song Colors and Breakaway. And oh my goodness, they're just so fantastic. I'm so excited for you to hear them. So big thank you to After Dark, and here we go. Hello, and welcome back to the Conquest of Bliss. I am, of course, Kara Fernstrom, and I am here once again with Dr. Johan John. Johan John. And how are you today, Dr. Johan? Uh, I'm doing very well, Kara. How are you? I'm I'm fantastic. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, so we're going to be talking about a super useful tool in helping us to understand things better, and also a tool that's very useful in expanding our knowledge. So um, it's it's a tool you heard about in English class. Um, so do you want to get us started and let us know what that tool is? Uh, the tool is metaphor uh, and sort of more broadly analogical thinking. Uh, it's like you said, something that comes up uh, in English class. And I, I still distinctly remember in sixth or seventh grade being taught about metaphor uh, in the context of a poem. I think it was like the road was a ribbon of moonlight was the line. In fact, I still remember it. And, uh, I, and when you're introduced to it, it does. It seems like some sort of decoration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it goes quite deeply into how humans think. And in, in, there is an argument to be made that we always think analogically even when we think we're speaking literally that that makes sense that makes sense and um so before before we go into how the tool works because i always love a good story how how did you i know you talked about it a little bit on the last episode you were on but how did you how did you open up to the fact that it's not just a linguistic decorative flir- uh, uh, flourishment like how did that come into your your knowledge that's a good question. I don't actually, I'm not sure I know when I started getting interested in this because I definitely enjoyed the English class. And I think around the same age, maybe I was in, introduced to Joseph Campbell, who was uh, an expert on mythology. And he was uh, very interested in looking at uh, mythology and understanding symbolic meanings. So the psychological um, understanding of things. And Uh, I immediately sort of resonated with that approach uh, to mythology in general. And, you know, I I brought up Christian, I'm Christian, and reading um, even Christian stories in in that way. But then I would talk about the sort of symbolic reading with people, and they wouldn't necessarily follow what I was talking about. So, uh, and then on the other hand, you you have within science, there's a lot of uh, analogy making to teach uh, a scientific idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as I kind of got into the history of science, I realized that uh, without an analogy, you're kind of lost because scientists are talking about and studying things that no one has really fully understood. So their toolbox consists of old ideas, mm-hmm. old images, memories, things like that. And so it's like taking a shape that you know and trying to fit it onto a shape that you're trying to understand. Yeah, and and that totally, yes. As soon as like, so I read an article that you uh, that you'd sent me that you'd written in uh, 2012, and I read that article, 
And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit, uh, just so that everybody has a full understanding and we can use the terms as we go, what the parts of a metaphor are, how, how that works? Ah, okay. So in that essay, I use some terminology from a really wild and interesting book called The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Um, and that, uh, you have to take the whole book with a pinch of salt. But what's interesting about it is that in the course of the book, there's all kinds of interesting little tools and little ideas that uh, the author, Julian Jaynes, uh, gives the reader. So you can use the tools even if you don't believe the overall thesis of the book. And one of them was, let's ask what metaphor is and how human beings started thinking metaphorically. So in the book, he asks, but if you think about it, people long before any sort of biology existed would attribute abstract features to, to the body. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you might say the chest is the container of courage mm -hmm. um, or, or some, when people say someone is yellow bellied, that, that's <laughs> something to do with the belly being connected to, to fear or cowardice. Um, and so how did they start doing this? And the way he said it was the human body became a metaphorical container for abstract attributes of a person's personality. Oh. So, so in order to kind of get into that, he explains what a metaphor is. Now, I know I wrote this essay, but I keep forgetting the terms, the exact oh, okay. terms. Well, I know metaphere was one of them. Yes, so there's, you have the metaphile and the metaphran. Okay. So but one of them is the thing that you're familiar with, that you're using to understand the less familiar thing. So I believe the metaphrand is what you'd like to understand. Yeah. And the metaphile is what you're using to understand. Yeah. Um, so in the case of the road was a ribbon of moonlight, let's say that I'm trying to describe the road. That's my metaphrand, the thing I'm targeting. And moonlight then, or ribbon, is the metaphile. It's giving me uh, uh, some, some way of shedding light on uh, what the moon, is, uh, what the road was like on that particular day. So... Uh, along with that initial kind of mapping saying, well, this is like that. There's all these additional uh, associations. Uh, sometimes they're just subconscious. So you have the patafire and patafrand, I think is the term, uh, were the terms that, that he, he used. But basically, uh, so we can shift to a different example here. The, the one I used in the essay was um, ideas as food. Yes. So you can, when you think about uh, you literally say that you're uh, digesting an idea mm -hmm. or, you know, chewing over uh, an idea or digesting a book, right? So once you sort of put this idea out there, other ideas kind of come along for free. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you say that digesting uh, uh, is related to understanding, you think, well, well, what's the stomach? And then you say, okay, and then that bounces you back to the world of, of reading and you say, oh, maybe it's the brain or specifically the part of the brain involved in reading. And then you can say, well, uh, what's uh, junk food uh, and what's uh, a salad? Mm -hmm. So there may be some forms of reading that are good for you and others that are, are like making you uh, less than healthy. Mm -hmm. or uh, and so you can keep, so it's like as if the seed of the initial metaphor can kind of grow into this bush of all kinds of different uh, associations that you may not initially even have thought of. Um, you know, there's this term that you come across on the internet sometimes, overthinking it. And I, I've always disliked this term because as, as long as you're not, you know, hurting anybody, overthinking is fun, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so making an extended metaphor 
uh, a wild analogy is a lot of fun it can be quite ridiculous like if you try to write one of these things down eventually you'll start to say things that aren't really true <laughs> yeah. or you're stretching the analogy but it's always good to push an analogy as far as it can go all the way to breaking point yeah that's that was one of the things that i really um really liked in the thing is that in the article is that you talked about yeah is that you you know you can leave an, an analogy where it is or a metaphor where it is or you can see how far it can go right and and what was cool as i was reading this is that i i'm a, i'm a huge fan of metaphors i've never dug deep into how, like how they work but like i've always associated much better and learned much better and explained things much better using metaphor and I've run into that where, like, so I wasn't really aware of what I was doing, and I've run into that where, you know, I'm talking and everything's lining up perfectly, and then all of a sudden I say something, and I'm like, wait, that doesn't make any sense, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. In fact, it's it's a, a good way to think about how, as with any tool, you got to know its limitations. Like, a hammer is useful for banging in nails and for opening cans of paint, but there are limits to what it can do. <laughs> if you want to screw something in, the hammer might not be the right choice. So, um, any specific metaphor, you have to know that it has limits, uh, which is why maybe I don't say it in that essay, but one thing I've been also thinking about is how to kind of deeply understand something. If you can cycle among different metaphors, you kind of destabilize being hung up on any one image for too long. And in one sense, that's the road to abstract thinking is to, to look at one metaphor and look at a different metaphor. And it, the more you can, the more analogies you can sort of lay out there, the more you're kind of getting at the essence of, of the, or the thing that, that uh, is drawing your attention. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of like, it's, it's almost more complete because you can sort of see different sides of it and you can see where it ceases to be like this other thing. Um, exactly. You know, and for, for anyone that's curious, I don't know if ever, anyone's as much of a nerd as me, but uh, simile is similar to metaphor, but it just uses like or as to compare instead of instead of just saying it's the same. Um, so <laughs> I, I always wondered that when I was a kid and then I learned it and I got really excited and then people ask me. Right. They, they, they make a big deal out of it when you're in middle school and high school, uh, but which is why I like to just fold everything into analogy. Now, there are people who quibble and say that, well, analogy is slightly different and because sometimes a metaphor doesn't sort of lay out kind of in a systematic way what is what. Because mm -hmm. if I'm saying reading is like digestion, I'm kind of doing something less literally and more like a, a table. I'm like, okay, the book is the food, the brain is the stomach, this is the this, and there's like, you can go one by one through the columns on two sides of, of, of a table. But uh, but the, the style of thinking is, is similar. So you could say that metaphor is like implicit analogy. And uh, similarly, it's just drawing attention to the fact that you're doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, the effect it has on the reader is quite interesting because when you don't say X is like Y, then uh, you're kind of, it produces an effect. I don't know how quite to describe it, but it's definitely an effect. Well, I think, yeah, like I think it's almost more um, fantastical. Like it engages a part of your brain that's more, uh, you know, like I said, fantastical seems like the right word where, you know, you can say her eyes shone like stars or her eyes were stars and her right. eyes shone like stars. is definitely a compliment, but her eyes were stars is sort of consuming. It pulls you in, you know, it makes yes, you, it forces word. you to think, um, which I think is, is part of it. Um, and so just um, because I am quite sure that you're more educated about this subject than me. So I'll just ask. So allegory and parables would also fall into analogy, right? Yes. Uh, 
with parables, especially sometimes it's hard to work out what the what the allegory is sometimes, but uh, especially uh, if it hasn't been fully explained. Uh, but uh, but yes, uh, so you could say that the sh- uh, you could almost think of it in terms of length. A metaphor could even be just a little phrase. Yeah. An analogy might require a couple of lines. And an allegory is often a story. Uh, and then you can have entire works that have multiple readings and that some readers are reading only the literal level of the narrative and other readers are seeing one or two or many symbolic resonances. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure we probably don't know because it's one thing that I definitely learned from our last one is it's amazing how much we're, we're still learning and we still have to learn, but do we have any information since 2012 about what's happening in our brains when we're using metaphor? This is an excellent question, and I, have, I confess I haven't looked for for uh, neuros, neuroscience studies lately. It's not my exact topic, but uh, the reason I'm somewhat skeptical, I mean, there may be an fMRI researcher <laughs> out there, and if they happen to be listening to this, please send me your paper, but uh, that shows that when someone is asked to look at SAT, GRE style analogies in an fMRI scanner, in an MRI scanner, then certain parts of the brain light up, and uh, there's reason, like if, if I were to do that experiment, I would guess before doing it that you would see language areas light up, but also potentially areas related to the specific activities. Like, like if someone is saying tennis is like war, and if, <laughs> yeah. if, and if someone were to uh, identify slightly different brain areas that are to do with war versus tennis, maybe both of them would become an, an, um, act, um, slightly more active than otherwise. And this relates to a, a, a general idea that's quite po- popular in neuroscience called embodied cognition. So it's like when we're thinking about something, we're sort of using the parts of the brain that are involved when we're perceiving that thing. So the so there's a basis in, in there for kind of blurring the, the uh, literal versus the metaphorical. So when we're actually looking at, at uh, a tennis match versus thinking about how something else is like tennis, um, similar brain areas seem to be involved. That's amazing. So basically like a complicated version of like placebo, how placebo works, you know, the the belief sort of makes it like it's actually happening in the brain. Well, placebo effect, also we don't really know exactly how it works. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the the idea is is that um, you're, you're sort of reusing something that has one, for is in one context, in a slightly different context. And we don't really know what the purpose is or how it evolved necessarily, but we could say that uh, patterns that you learn in one domain might turn out to be useful in another. Mm. Uh, um, and that, so even implicitly, uh, without knowing that we're doing it, we might, like when someone's explaining something to you, you might not be explicitly saying, let me think of an analogy, but it just so happens that something from your uh, domain of, of uh, experience or, or expertise suddenly crops up almost mm-hmm. on its own. Yeah, this is very so, familiar. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Or, you know, I read a book where that sort of thing happened. So, um, and, yeah. that's, that's incredible. This is, okay. Um, <laughs> um, so, when people are, people, like, like, one of the cool things about this conversation to me and about reading that article and stuff like that, and you even mentioned it in the article, is that a lot of people view allegorical thinking or, or an, an, analog, analogical, how does this work? Yes. Okay. Um, analogical thinking as 
sort of superfluous, sort of silly, um, not grounded in whatever the the term of the day is that means like, you know, tough and smart and straight edged. Um, can you yeah. speak to a little bit of that in the scientific community and, and why that, you know, would be hopefully changed soon? Because I know it's popular in pop science. Um, but yeah, yeah. So one way to kind of maybe set this up is, is there's an, an idea that's popular in, in a lot of scientific uh, fields uh, that uh, all models are false, but some are useful. Um, so people often say this, that, that basically when you make some sort of mathematical model of something or even a, like a physical model, like a little Lego version of something, um, that that's not capturing all of reality. Uh, but at the same time, people believe that there exists out there, perhaps in some in some future, the perfect model that captures all details of reality. Uh, I don't think such a thing is possible or even meaningful. <laughs> the whole reason that we use theories and models is to simplify reality. And the nature of simplification is to throw away details. Well, now, and, oh, sorry, I just have a question. You know, there's about... an element of, you know, which details you throw away matters, which is why it may not be the case that one model is always useful. Mm -hmm. You may need to use a slightly different model depending on what it is you want to do. If you are a surgeon, you might need to look at the brain in one way. But if you're thinking about how the brain works, you might need a slightly different perspective in addition to what the surgeon knows. So mm -hmm. there's different models that you use. Yeah, that was basically what my question was, was when the ultimate model ultimately limit us because then we believe that we know all there is to know and we stop searching. Right. And, and so there's a joke. Um, there are these, uh, there's a paper that, that uh, from two famous uh, uh, people who founded cybernetics, Norbert Wiener and Arturo Rosenbluth. And they wrote that the best material model of a cat is another or preferably the same cat. <laughs> now, like what's the point of learning about a cat using another cat? Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds silly, but, but we're getting to this point with really, really complicated models. Like you've heard of machine learning mm -hmm. and artificial neural networks probably. And one issue is that when they work, we don't always understand why they work. <laughs> uh, so, so what we have, and it almost sounds like something from a parody or a short story, but now we have research into the models about to, to look at why they work. And people are using some of the methods that people are using for the brain to understand things that they themselves made. Oh like, goodness. what if I knock out this bit of the artificial network, what happens? Uh, that's analogous to when people use lesions. They break something in, in, the, in, in the brain uh, uh, and see what happens. So the more complicated your models get, the more they themselves become things that need to be understood. But just to link this back, back to analogy, when people are confronted with metaphors and analogies, uh, because of this idea that they're literary or decorative, uh, they think, well, I would like to know the literal truth. Uh, and it's true that some analogies, you very quickly come to where the analogy fails. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, if you say that an atom is like the solar system, mm -hmm. with, uh, the nucleus in the middle and the uh, electrons revolving around them like planets, that's like an okay start. But the solar system is like is kind of flat, uh, whereas the atom has a very complicated structure. And electrons are not little point masses; they they are probabilistic and weird. <laughs> no one really knows what to say about them. Um, so, and the you have to be aware that when you're offering an analogy, it only takes you so far. Mm -hmm. And I think physicists, in particular, are very good at at taking everything they say with a pinch of salt. And mathematicians too. It's like, well, we'll use these analogies, but quickly drop them. 
Mm-hmm. And I think in fields that maybe are not so mathematical, uh, and uh, the 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 feeling there's a little bit of fear of, mm-hmm. of analogies. It's like, oh no, what if I get stuck with like like the selfish gene metaphor? It's a metaphor, and you know Richard Dawkins says so in the book. But in that particular context, the fact that the word selfish is so prominent in there, people say, well, we don't like this in a, uh, metaphor because of the the pacifiers, like the the other things that kind of ride along with this metaphor, mm-hmm. which maybe were not intended in the original design of that metaphor. It's like, well, if genes are selfish, should people be selfish too? Um, <laughs> or is it the case that any kind of altruism is actually a form of selfishness? You may not want those kinds of associations, and so people have tried to speak in very abstract, dry, image-free kind of language, yeah. and that was. Very popular in the middle of the 20th century. We're kind of waking up from that <laughs> that period at the moment. Well, and and I mean the thing that a lot of people and I and I mean I I'm not, I can't remember if you mentioned this specifically, but the unfortunate side effect of that is is a rift and inaccessibility for a lot of people because if you haven't studied the entire you know like if I haven't studied neuroscience, I'm not going to understand what you're talking about. If you if you don't talk in some sort of metaphors, like make it relatable in some way, you know, like I have a vague idea of like what synapses are, but that's that's more or less the end of it, you know. Like I've heard of the amygdala and stuff, but I don't know what any of it means without metaphor. Um, and and you know, there's a, the the sort of dirty secret of a lot of scientists is that they'll use lots of metaphors while talking to each other or in private or while thinking, and then they'll kind of remove them by the time they get to the stage of publication. And then it's the job of a separate group of writers, like the journalists and the pop scientists, to add some metaphors back again. It's not always the case. Some scientists are good about putting the metaphors in there, um, but but this is a problem because then they'll complain, oh, that the pop scientists don't get it. You know, the the, the pop writers are, are misleading people. But it's in the nature of simplifications that they'll be misleading in some direction or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's better to kind of use the metaphors and always remind people of where they break down. Because abstract language, and here's this is a fun twist, which many people will probably disagree with. But a lot of abstract language that's trying to be hyper-specific is itself uh, metaphorical. Just, people just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the simplest way to think about that is that when I categorize something, when I say all these different things, like a Chihuahua and a Great Dane, are dogs, right? What exactly am I saying here? Like, what is dog in the abstract? Like, if someone from a different planet were to land all of a sudden and be shown a Chihuahua and Red Dane, would they realize that they're the same species? Yeah. Um, so, so what's happening here? Uh, that that we're saying that certain features uh, are common between them. And in this case, there's a, ge- there's a genealogical history. We know that they descended from wolves. But in other situations, it's more complicated. Like uh, when we use an, a, a, an abstract process, when we say something revolves around something else. Ooh. What does it mean to revolve around something else? It means to go the only way goals. I can explain it is with specific examples. Uh, so all of those, like you could say, well, the essence of it isn't bolted to any of the one examples, but in order to understand it, you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that kind of leads to sort of my next question is, you know, if, if someone wants to use like, like 
use metaphor. I mean, obviously, now we know that science often uses metaphor and just sort of keeps it behind closed doors, um, which which I get. I get, especially with the sciences, like you said, that are less mathematical. They're already fighting the terms like soft sciences, which is a metaphor as well. Um, <clears throat> But using, you know, fighting these terms and, and just, you know, wanting to prove validation. And so the second they use something that might appear as fluff, then people might. So I, so I get that. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, great for people to know, because if the scientists are using it, then it's probably OK if you use it, too. Um, so the uh, the next question is how, you know, how does metaphor help us learn and and what can we use it for? Um, as far as, because you, you talked a little bit about not only does it help us understand, but also that it can further our knowledge. So can you just talk a little bit on that piece? Because it's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah, I think uh, what is understanding, right? Like like the origins of that term come from not so much standing underneath something as <laughs> standing inside something. So under, there's a, there's a word it's related to in Hindi and Sanskrit, antar, which means inside. So to understand something is to kind of stand inside it, to kind of almost like take its perspective. Um, so so uh, there's different forms of understanding and different kind of standards or criteria by which people um, decide that they've understood something. Like sometimes you just want to hear a story and then if the story sounds plausible to you, you say you understood. But if you're an engineer, that's not necessarily sufficient. You want to be able to control the thing that you've been just told about. If someone says, I made this new cool material, let me tell you a story about it. The engineer is like, whatever, just tell me how I can use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, story is great, but I want to know. And, and, and in science and philosophy, if you like look carefully, you'll see that some people, when they ask for an explanation, what they want is a narrative. It might be called a causal narrative, <laughs> but that causal narrative is not always useful. Um, like, for instance, knowing how the universe was was formed, not exactly going to give me a technology I can use tomorrow. Right? <laughs> yes. Knowing about the Big Bang, what exactly am I going to do with that? Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so understanding is in the eye of the beholder to some extent. And what metaphor does is, this, it does two things, one of which is not necessarily good. Like, if you shop around for the metaphor that, that suits you, it might actually prevent you from investigating further. If you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I get this. This is just like the thing that I'm already familiar with. That's bad because it kind of kills curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, but if you use it well, it's like saying, well, there's this big baffling thing here. I need a way in. And then the metaphor is like a gateway to say, oh, you don't have to like, uh, learn everything afresh. You're not a baby here. There are certain things that you understand intuitively even that you can import when you're entering this domain. Uh, and, and so the metaphor, if you are sensitive to those pacifiers, to those additional associations that sort of radiate outwards, you might like come up with something or you might, um, yeah, basically almost join in the process of discovery, even if it's just for yourself. It's like, uh, people talk about reinventing the wheel, but sometimes it's good to reinvent the wheel. Like mm -hmm. you kind of learn how wheels are made. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so if you think, if you have an analogy, you can like read up on something and then think, well, if that's true, maybe this is also true. And then you can like check. Now on, on the internet, you can just Google and say, is it the case that X means Y? So you can kind of get a window into scientific thinking. So the, the metaphors can open your horizons outwards. Mm hmm. Well, and I and I like I like the um, idea that like, you know, you, you follow it to 
where it stops making sense and then maybe you grab another metaphor or maybe you explore you know the differences i think is another great way to do it is go oh you know it, the moon is no longer like cheese in this case so so what is it like you know and 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 sort of use that as a as a place to explore i think it was a really uh you said jumping off point or something similar to that and i think that that's a real or use a gateway same idea though right is it yeah. it puts you in a position to start understanding because without a starting like I, i'm for some reason i'm thinking of like graph paper and you're trying to draw a graph but if you don't have an original point to start with you have no idea what that's that graph is supposed to look like right mm -hmm. um so that's so fascinating and i guess that's a metaphor too i didn't even mean to do that <laughs> um so the other thing too is is i think that one thing you know is is about communication and and I really liked when you said, you know, don't, or not don't, but that it's not as helpful to uh, lean into like, like the metaphor that suits you best. And I think that it, it's also helpful to understand the other kind of possible issue with that is if you're trying to communicate and you're going beyond just trying to learn for yourself, sometimes the metaphor that suits you best isn't going to be something that's well understood by the other party, right? right. Exactly. <clears throat> So, and it can also color your, your way of approaching something. Like, for instance, if you either consciously or unconsciously treat every discussion as a war, or like, uh, uh, um, then the metaphor of wars involve like attacks and counter thrusts, and there's all these kinds of words people use, for instance, in academic debates. So, that can color you, uh, you how you frame things and can even influence your emotions because you're thinking in terms of winning and losing. And, and all of those kinds of things that come al along with the war metaphor. However, um, if it would be much cooler if people thought about debates uh, as like a jazz improvisation, <laughs> where each person gets to have a solo, but also they're trying to set up rhythms for the other person. Um, and, you know, uh, so it can change how you uh, uh, approach social interactions. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and as you started talking about war, my thought immediately went to um, a lot of people, for whatever reason, come to me for relationship advice. And one of the things that I always tell people is stop making your partner the enemy, right? So many people are like, I'm going to win this relationship or I'm going to win this, <laughs> this, you know, win this fight even. And it's like, well, I mean, a one fight is one where nobody wins, right? Um, and, and so, like, I think that that's a really interesting point is that how shifting the metaphors, the ways that we relate to the world make a huge impact on what decisions we make going forward. Are we trying to win or are we trying to build a beautiful jazz? Or are we, you know, trying to build a life, which again, another metaphor, holy crap, there's so many metaphors, yep. <laughs> you know, but trying to, to build a life together and then you're a team and every win for your partner is a win for you, exactly. you know? So, oh, that's, fantastic. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I know I get really giddy. I get like this about anything to do with like language stuff and, and how that, that works. Um, so what the question, okay. What can we, what can we do if we don't know kind of how to start, where to find a metaphor? I know that doesn't come as naturally to everyone. Any ideas on, like like sort of backward re or reverse engineering how metaphor works so that people can sort of get there if they need it or want it. That's interesting. I I I don't know that I have any 
recipes. But one thing that could be fun, I don't know whether I've tried it, but maybe I subconsciously do this, is kind of take anything you're interested in and compare it to anything else that you happen to like like you can all like the crazy thing about the human mind is how you can t- take any two things however unrelated they are uh and compare them you can pick a galaxy and an ant uh and so like you could almost like make games out of this which is like you could put a bunch of words in a hat and then players pick two words out and they have to say in what way are they similar and in what way are they not similar the not similar part is easier so you have to kind of make sure that the similar thing comes first um and and that kind of kind of exercises your analogy metaphor uh, muscles <laughs> yeah. and that could be like a fun party game and maybe maybe I'm yeah, boring yeah, yeah. because i think that'd be a fun party game um, <laughs> you know and and yeah like like i think that that's great advice because play and this is a little bit off topic but play is one of the most um functional learning tools that i've come across is you know like my brain at least i can't speak to other people's but like my brain my mind does not like dry it does not like trying to like when i force it to learn something i'm like i need to know this information you know but when i when it's a game when you play it becomes it becomes exciting you become engaged you want to be better at it so in fact um there's another kind of dimension where the sheer power of human analogy making is pretty evident it's in memes so when someone takes you know 60s spiderman and then put something on there that's related to current events or they're say- they're basically saying that the current event that they were commenting on is analogous to the feeling they get or the expression on spiderman's in that he that he has or oh, so so uh people are implicitly doing this they're saying oh oh that that expression there uh in uh, matches this particular situation or my um emotions uh and and memes get very meta about this but yeah. but basically uh the they're like uh, speedy uh analogy formation a lot of them not not all like obviously this surreal nonsense also <laughs> but humor is a great way to kind of discover one's own uh analogy making because uh, when people are engaging in wordplay and puns and things like that they're kind of already operating at the level of like searching their associative network they're like well this person used this word but that also reminds me of bananas which reminds me of banana peels and sl- clowns slipping on a banana peel so so that associative process with a little more structure you go from just images relating to each other to images resonating with each other and it comes naturally to people uh so it's just a matter of drawing attention to what they already do a lot of the time mhm that makes sense and i think you know as we're talking and i'm 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 sort of you know stewing on on this i think probably to some degree it comes from what we were talking about earlier is people's fear of appearing silly people's fear of not being concrete enough right it's it's a funny thing about the abstract in general where people are like pretty uncomfy with uh with abstract reasoning, abstract ideas, abstract thought. And and it's right. you know, it's so often compared to to silliness or um oh, I can't think of the word I want to use, but it basically means silliness. Um but is a less silly like being frivolous or something. But, frivolous. <laughs> but, yeah. So, but you know there's an interesting sort of counterpoint. I mean, what you're saying is true, but there's an interesting counterpoint. And of all people, the philosopher Hegel made this point in an essay about how many uneducated or less educated people think in abstractions and what he and he gave a really interesting example of um i think those days they still had public executions okay 
and there was some case of a, a murderer and and uh, some aristocratic educated woman was was talking about how handsome the murderer was <laughs> and the, the some of the poorer people were just horrified and uh, that she would think of that uh, and and hegel's point is that the the average person who's horrified is thinking in terms of the abstraction murder equals evil evil means how could you think possibly about what that person looks like yeah whereas this other person is actually more concrete because all they're thinking about is what's in front of them which is a pretty face <laughs> yeah. um so uh, you could say that uh some people and it, it doesn't have to be educated or uneducated it just like happens that a lot of people approach the world in terms of sort of large categories uh which are abstract they're like good or bad uh, what's in it for me and we you, like all those are in a sense abstractions um uh, or like uh, judging people by where they are from or what their background is uh, or how much money they make these are all outside of the concrete mm-hmm. uh, of what they're experiencing with their senses well and what so, oh sorry yeah so so yeah go ahead well, i was going to say what's really interesting too is that they're they're kind of shortcuts um these these particular abstractions that you've mentioned where it's like you know like if i decide that everybody from x places is this way then i don't have to get to know anybody and and investigate further or if i decide that anybody who's killed another person is bad i don't have to figure out if there was something that led to that you know or or you know if we're having some societal issue that's causing all these murderers or whatever it's it's just a you know a a shortcut which is really interesting because i never thought of it that way before um <laughs> so yeah it's like uh, we 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 all look at the world through filters and and partly you know stress and and like uh, lack of free time la- uh, poverty many things will force you to kind of simplify things because it's like if you have no time at all then you're you're like oh i need to only do the stuff that's super valuable and that really simplifies things or if you've only given yourself one hour a day to watch tv then you need the to pack a wallop of as much entertainment <laughs> as possible into that one hour and it it may for someone who spends 8 hours a day watching tv they have all these fine subtleties of <laughs> the difference between tv show a and the, the remake or something like that um which other people don't have time for they want uh uh you know like in india we have this term masala movie which means a mix of everything a lot of the happiness sadness the fa- action everything dialed to 11 <laughs> <laughs> well and i think that that's a really a really interesting point and something that honestly i've been thinking about a lot and i would love your kind of thoughts on this is okay i don't know if you ever watched the show the good place um i don't watch a lot of tv but it was one that i managed and they talked about how complicated things have gotten whether you talk about ethically or just just responsibility wise is that an adult human in 2021 has a billion things to manage you know we have to manage all of our internet stuff which is kind of a world of its own and then on top of that our jobs and then on top of that this and that and this and that and and even like you know buying an apple could if you followed the path you know be child slavery in a different country that kind of stuff and it's gotten so complicated so i mean i think that there's a lot of value in taking these shortcuts maybe not those ones oh, in yeah. particular but in giving ourselves grace to just exist sometimes right right i there's no doubt that we need these i mean you go crazy if you were 
uh, really only dealing with uh, hyper specific things and 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 taking everything on face value. Um, so so it's you you definitely need to simplify. Um, but I guess you could say that that it's you know to go back to the musical analogy that uh, one needs to find the rhythm, like uh, and somewhere in your you know the rhythm of your day, uh, um, being able to sort of space out think either very metaphorically or very literally because I, I often think that thinking very literally is also difficult like like uh, if like and a place to do this is in an art museum <laughs> because a lot of people think when they're in an art museum that you're supposed to think of fancy theories of aesthetics and ooh, what is the symbol symbolic meaning but I would recommend that I mean you can do that you can read those little plaques that say very strange things about the painting <laughs> um, but you could also just think about paint. You know, like I love to go up to paintings and then look at them from the side and see like, the sheer quantity of paint that was used. <laughs> uh, or like think about or just experience the physical form of the artwork, you know, just color and texture and shape. Uh, and not think too much about um, what it means. Uh, I mean, if, if what it means comes screaming at you, then that's fine. Uh, but allocating space for that and, you know, having hobbies, it could be cooking, it could be music, it could be pottery. Those are places where you can really get up close and personal with the literal mm-hmm. <laughs> of what's right in front of you. So I have a question, and maybe you don't have an answer, and it's fine if you don't. But as you're talking about the art museum, so that's something that I do as well for whatever reason. So I'm really metaphorical, but I'm also an artist. So whenever I go to an art museum, I'm like just fascinated with the paint and and like the form and how they did all that. But the other thing, so, so I almost never think about what it means, um, like almost never, but... Sometimes what'll happen is I'll be like overcome with like a feeling, whatever that feeling might be. You know, maybe it's a really like suddenly I feel really dark or I feel really happy or whatever light. There's all sorts of different feelings that I might feel, which two of the three of those were metaphors. But um, in in those cases, you know, feeling your feelings, would that fall more into the abstract or would that fall more into the literal? Because it's a physical sensation, right? That is a great question, and I could go either way with this. <laughs> but I think what I'll say is is maybe not exactly an answer, but it's something like this. After I wrote that essay, and I'm thinking, but in the past couple of years, I've been thinking that empathy is sort of like metaphor or analogy at the level of emotion. Ooh. So when you experience feelings, particularly like like if, you, if you're watching something and then it's like oh that thing exactly happened to me I and I relate that's one thing and that relating it kind of it has an autobiographical quality mm-hmm. but the, in in ancient Indian aesthetics which I discovered a couple of years ago there was this idea that well if you can't relate at all then and you still feel the emotion then that's very pure in some sense so in, in, the, in those examples it was like let's say you're watching a play about a king and you're not a king. There's only one king, so you're probably not the king. (laughs) And you're watching and the king is sad and over the course of the play, you feel sad too. And let's say the situation is so out of this world that it's never happened to you. Yeah. The sadness that you experience is in one sense very abstract because it is abstracted from your life. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, that happened to me just the other day. But at the same time, there's something very concrete in the sense that you're not merely thinking about sadness, you're experiencing it. Exactly. Or a version of it. So it kind of blurs that boundary between the abstract and the concrete. You're concretely feeling something, but there is a process of abstraction. And in fact, you could flip it around and say that to really uh, kind of have that suspension of disbelief and be completely, to forget about yourself and be completely wrapped in, in something, 
on the one hand you need to be willing for that to happen but on mm-hmm. the other hand that's the skill of the artist to kind of make you forget almost who you are even for the duration of movie or the tv show yeah that totally makes sense so like how it happens is very abstract but the actual experience of it is very concrete oh that's so cool okay so um we're going to move on to our super fun game um, but before we do that, can you just remind people where they can find your your work? I know you've got a website and some other cool stuff. Yeah, you can find uh, Johan John, uh, Y-O-H-A-N-J-O-H-N.com. And I'm on Twitter, Dr. Johan John, D-R Johan John. Yeah, and honestly, if you follow anyone on Twitter, follow Dr. Johan John. He posts the most interesting stuff. Um, I often don't respond because it's like a bit above me. Um, like, like I feel like I'm like if I respond, I'm gonna look silly in front of all these neuroscientists. But I read them all, and it's fascinating. And so, um, I definitely recommend following Dr. Johan. Um, to respond, it's my job to come up with analogies to make these things understandable. If they're not, <laughs> oh, I just like I said, I love it. I love reading it, and then like I always. I always feel so smart because I I understand. I just don't quite understand well enough to like respond in a way that's going to add value. <laughs> so I just press the little heart and enjoy it and move on. But so like I said, definitely worth a follow. T- definitely recommend. Um, so you ready to guess uh, some super fun Gen Z slang? Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll start. We'll start with bop. What does it mean to say something is a bop? Um, catchy song? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what it is. This song's a bop. Uh, <laughs> okay, what does bet mean? Is what? Bet. Bet. E-E-T. And it doesn't mean like gamble or wager. Uh, no. Bet. Uh... A guess? I don't know. Yeah, it, it means y- yes. Yeah, is that what you is that what you guessed? Yes. I said I said guess. Oh oh, <laughs> well yeah. So it means like it's just a general term for agreement. So if I was like, hey, are you gonna come on my podcast today? You'd be like, bet. Oh, like I'll bet. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's probably where it comes from. Uh-huh. Oh, or you bet. I didn't even know. I was just like, that's a weird. You thing. bet. Yeah yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. What does it mean to say cap or no cap? The whole thing is one phrase, cap or no cap? No, no, no. You can you can say either. So there's cap and it's opposite, no cap. Hmm. Cap or no cap? Oh, that's a weird one. Yeah, it's super weird and I don't understand where it came from at all. Uh, something to do with clothes? No, it's lying. So cap means to lie. So if I was like, I'm having Dr. Johan John on today and people be like, is that cap? And I'd be like, no cap. Um, I don't know why I keep using this. This is an example. But, um, all right. We'll do two more. This one's super, super weird to me. Drip. 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 And it's not an onomatopoeia. It's so weird. So to be sad? No, right? Like, that would make so much more sense. Apparently, it means a cool sense of style. <laughs> the example okay. is, her drip is iconic. So wow. we'll use the last one. This will be the last one, and I'm pretty sure you know what it means. Um, but maybe not. What does it mm-hmm. mean to say that someone has ghosted? Oh, they, they peaced out. They left. Yeah, they disappeared without saying anything. You did You did fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You got 
two out of five, which is significantly better than most people do. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Is there anything you want to add before I say goodbye to the audience? Uh, thanks so much, Kara. It's uh, always great. And uh, people, if they want to chat more, um, feel free to contact me. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, this was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I just always enjoy talking to you. And to my audience, I love you. Bye. Thank you.